This show is brought to you by Cakes and Tins, where you can send the people you adore delightful and delicious gifts that give back. Go to cakesintins.com and use the code ACTINGREAL for 10% off. This show is also brought to you by LA Bookmaker, a deluxe stationery shop and custom bookbinder, offering handmade foil stamped cards, high quality calendars, and other ephemeral gifts. Go to la-bookmaker.com. Our clarity story today comes from Lauren Dow, who has written a book called In Body I Trust, uh, which I'll tell you more about after I read her story. She writes, Laying on the bathroom floor, grazing the pills in my hand, counting down backwards from ten, trying to coach myself through what I imagined would be the end of my life. I didn't want it to end, this thing called life. What I wanted was for the feeling to end. The debilitating depression, the disordered eating thoughts and behaviors. What I wanted was freedom, a thing that seemed completely unattainable. But I didn't do it. The universe disrupted the pattern by sending my dog to my rescue. She cried for help, reminding me that there is someone in this world, many someones, who need me. My moment of clarity happened when I was at my lowest. It was a dark well that I was always too afraid to grab the rope and pull myself out of because I knew my little monster would be at the top of the well ready to push me back down, or so I thought. At that moment, I had no choice. I could continue down the same path that led me nowhere new, or I could choose to take one small step toward an uncharted path I hadn't yet explored. It would be difficult, but with nothing left to lose... I got myself up off the floor and took that first step. My life has been one incredibly long domino effect, one terrible thing leading right into the next. But when a moment of clarity comes through, you snatch it from the air and hold on to it. You pick up the dominoes and set them up in a different direction. That's what I've done. Now I use my darkness to bring light into other people's world. I found my purpose, knowing that I was supposed to fall in order to show others it's absolutely possible to get back up. My life filled with a message, a mission, a story to be told, and I'm going to keep telling it until someone who needs to hear it gets that message and finds a way to take one small step in their life too, in hopes that they don't have to hit rock bottom in order to start seeking the help that they need. I'll keep talking about mental health. I'll keep reinforcing the power of self-love. I'll keep fighting the good fight. And to whomever is listening, there is a place, a safe space for you right here with me, with us, with a community of people out there who will accept you with open arms, regardless of what your story looks like. Remember that you are the author of your narrative. Take the pen to paper and write as you see fit. And one last thing, I love you. I unconditionally adore you for exactly who you are. You, my dear, are loved. It's a very moving story to me. Lauren Dow is the author of In Body I Trust, a story of one woman's journey of survival, growth, and recovery, a story that talks about the true feeling that embodies loneliness and how you can become your own savior a story that needs to be told. 
10% of the royalties Lauren receives on all orders will be donated to Project HEAL, a nonprofit organization that is breaking down systemic health care and financial barriers to eating disorder treatment for whom the system fails. You can pre-order In Body I Trust by visiting laurendow.com. You won't just be buying a book. You'll be contributing towards something greater, towards an organization that is giving others a second chance at life, a life we all deserve to have. Lauren, thank you so much for sharing your clarity stories. Uh, clarity story, and everyone go out and buy her book. She's a real smart, wise woman. Thanks, Lauren. If you have a story about a time that changed your life, it can be very mundane. You were hanging out by yourself and you had a thought, or it can be crazy, crazy. You uh, were drinking plant medicine and you had a vision. Um, whatever the story is, if you want to share it, I want to hear it. I really, really, really do want to hear from you. Please email me at claritystories at actingrealpodcast.com. That's claritystories at actingrealpodcast.com. My guest today is Deepak Chopra. And uh, I'm going to try and make this intro pretty short um, because this you know, sort of all that needs to be said is said in this episode. <laughs> Potentially all that needs to be said in life is said in this episode, which is just in the next, uh, you know, over the next hour or so. Um, uh, I've known Deepak for a while. I, I think we met at a retreat. Uh, I, in, I know we met at a retreat, but I think the retreat was in 2013. Um, and it was a retreat with the Chopra Center that I think may now just be called Chopra. Um, we, uh, it was a silent retreat, um, but we sort of struck up a kind of silent friendship and, uh, stayed in contact. Um, I have such tremendous respect, um, as, as do so many for Deepak and his breadth of knowledge. I mean, it's like, he's like an encyclopedia. It's incredible. Um, and then of course, beyond that, his, you know, the scope, the depth of his wisdom is just, you know, almost unparalleled, I think, in this in this uh, world we're living in. Um, and so this is really special that I got to speak with him. And, um, and of course, you know, he's also just a dude. He's a dad and a grandfather. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a special guy, but no more special than anyone else, right? That's the paradox. Um, this episode also kind of hammers home that my show really is about consciousness. This podcast is about consciousness. And I speak with actors because um, I believe that actors uh, get to inhabit um, a really expansive consciousness when they're acting. And, and I believe that we learn how to do that. And so that's, that's the whole reason that I'm talking to actors, because I feel like actors have a unique perspective on consciousness. And um, and Deepak and I even talk about acting. Deepak talks a little bit about acting. Um, but of course, this episode is not about acting. Um, but I hope that none of my episodes are really fully about acting. But this episode, really, we, we barely talk about acting. But we do a little bit. Um, and it's fascinating what he has to say about acting. And we just talk about so, so much. I told you I was going to try and keep this intro short. Um, anyway, he's a very special person to me personally. I have 
great affection for him and a huge admiration of him and respect for him. And I, I've been a student of his for a really long time. Um, and I'm lucky enough to also be able to call him a friend. Um, and I feel that way about so many of my guests. And I should also say this is our season finale. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. And what a season it's been. It's been a really crazy season. I mean, you know, so many of the episodes that we recorded this season were recorded pre-pandemic. And as so many of you know who've been listening, um, and so I've done all these part twos to kind of make these episodes that we recorded pre-pandemic feel more contemporary or, or whatever, current, um, because so much has changed in the world uh, over the past year, year and a half. I mean, you know, we, we've all undergone a, a massive shift in consciousness, in my opinion. Um, and it's really beautiful to behold uh, how far we've come. And we're, you know, we're those of us who are lucky enough to have survived uh, this pandemic um, are, you know, I think we're sort of seeing how different we are, how different life is, how different we feel. And uh, so anyway, hopefully this podcast has, um, I mean, my intention is that this podcast is kind of like stuck with us, right? Like we're all talking about change. We're talking about our lives changing. We're talking about consciousnesses shifting. Um, and like, that's what this podcast is about. And I think my guests over the course of the season have spoken a lot about that. And anyway, here we are in our final episode with someone whose eloquence about consciousness is, you know, almost unparalleled. Um, although we also quote, poetry in this episode and and Alan Watts in this episode, and it's really a full one. So listen, Deepak Chopra, MD, FACP, if you don't know what that is, because I didn't, frankly, I mean, maybe I should have, but I didn't, but it's the, uh, he's a fellow of the American College of Physicians, which is a very special honor, founder of the Chopra Foundation, a nonprofit entity for research on well-being and humanitarianism humanitarianism, humanitarianism, geez Louise, and Chopra, a modern day health company at the intersection of science and spirituality, is a world-renowned pioneer in integrative medicine and personal transformation. Chopra is a clinical professor of family medicine and public health at the University of California, San Diego, and serves as a senior scientist with the Gallup organization. He is the author of over 90 books translated into over 43 languages, including numerous New York Times bestsellers. For the last 30 years, Chopra has been at the forefront of the meditation revolution, and his 91st book, 91st book, Total Meditation, uh, published by Harmony Books, helps to achieve new dimensions of stress-free living and joyful living. Time Magazine has described Dr. Chopra as one of the top 100 heroes and icons of the century. And of course, you can visit www.deepakchopra.com if you want more information. By the way, I asked for that bio. It's not like Deepak really needs a bio, right? <laughs> but just because I read one for everyone else, I feel like I should read one for him too. Um, anyway, Guys, thank you so much for being here with me this season. Um, I just adore you. If you are listening to this podcast for the very first time because you're like a Deepak Chopra fan, but you didn't really know it existed, um, you know, because you don't usually listen to acting podcasts, uh, hopefully um, you'll go back and listen to some of our episodes from past um, actors, actors that you like, know and love, or actors that you don't know. 
and love. Um, but uh, there's a lot of special episodes, and I just feel so fortunate to have this podcast and to have this chance to speak with people about subjects that are important to me and that I love. And um, I'm just tremendously grateful for you and tremendously grateful for this platform and tremendously grateful for to Deepak Chopra for being our season two special guest finale guest. <laughs> I didn't say that right. Anyway, I love you. Thanks. One last really quick thing I'm going to mention. I swear this will be quick. Uh, did you guys know that we have a show notes page for every single episode of this podcast? Like a lot of show notes that actually I spend a really long time compiling. Like I pull quotes from every single episode. Like if you're listening and you're like, oh, wow, I can't wait. I wish. And you like want to rewind it or write it down or something. I've probably pulled that quote and it is very accessible on our show notes page at www.actingreal. Do people say W's anymore? <laughs> probably not. Um, anyway, at actingrealpodcast.com, actingrealpodcast.com, you will find uh, all of those quotes, like amazing quotes from all of these episodes. And also anytime someone references something, even if like you didn't hear it, like especially uh, this episode, Deepak says uh, a lot of words that you might be like, I've never heard that word before. I I have heard, I've written them all down and I have links to all of them for you to understand what he's talking about um, if you don't already. And also anyone ever mentioned, all the people mentioned in these episodes, I have uh, links for you to know who they are. This is for every episode we've ever recorded. And I don't know if anyone's ever been to these show notes pages, but I have uh, insisted on maintaining them and keeping them alive and up to date. So those are for you if you want them. What I need for my life, I am drawn to create the play. You have a child, right? You have a baby. I do. I have a baby. Oh. Yeah, she's um, she's two years and ten months. She's almost three. Okay. Listen, next time I'm on the West Coast, I'd love, love to see you. Oh, I would love it so much. I would love it so much. Um, and next time I'm, you know, in New York, which yeah, I love to be I'm in New York. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's such a, a like, uh, you know, I mean. I love you. Uh, I love everything about you. I always have. And I, um, it's just such an incredible opportunity to, to have, to sit with you for, for this time that we have together. Um, so I have plans, you know, for this podcast because I didn't want to let this opportunity go without, you know, really investing some time in, in sort of intention, intentionality in it. Um, so basically, so you know, you have so much experience. Um, you, you talk so much about the formless and, and I, and I love how you speak about the formless and sort of being out, out of time and space and consciousness. And that is essentially what this podcast is about. But I also really want to talk about for you, what it's like to be in form, to be in, in your body. And, um, the, 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 the purpose of this podcast is to essentially expand, help listeners expand their consciousness. Okay. That's like the whole, the whole point of this podcast is consciousness and it's called acting real. And I usually speak with actors because, um, 
you know, I believe that acting is, is very consciousness expanding and that actually acting is a healing modality. I mean, it's also very entertaining and there's lots of purposes beyond that. Um, so that's why though you are such like a perfect guest for this podcast. Um, anyway, the point is we're going to talk a little theory. We're going to talk a little philosophy, then we're going to get some personal, a bit, and then we'll probably end in some practical things if we have time. And by the way, we may stray from all of this. We probably will. Um, so I guess, um, where I want to start, first of all, I have some self-consciousness about, you know, asking you questions that are too personal or, or too like beneath you in some way. Um, so I just want to put that out there. Um, but I guess my, my first question is, you know, obviously you've been working on consciousness and expansion for decades and decades. And, and what does your journey feel like now? Like, what are your current interests now in this moment in your life? So, you know, I, I, I'm a traditionalist um, when it comes to wisdom traditions and deeper understanding of consciousness. So in the tradition I come from, uh, first 25 years of your life, you basically get the best education that you can. It's called the first ashrama. The second 25 years of your life, you uh, seek fame, fortune, you take care of a family, you bring up children. And that's called the second ashrama. The third is you slowly start to detach from uh, uh, material constructs um, and you start to give back to the world. That's the third 25 years. And believe it or not, I don't feel like it, but I'm going to be 75 in October. My biological age is probably half that, but physically, chronologically, I'm going to be 75. And this is called the fourth ashrama and supposed to last about a hundred, up to a hundred years. Uh -huh. although, although if you're a good, you have a good understanding of consciousness, you can extend it no matter when you want to, mm -hmm. to limit. And you're supposed to then, um, your exit plan from the planet is conscious meditation. So mm -hmm. you die in what is called Mahasamadhi, the big meditation, consciously. Mm -hmm. And so I'm entering my fourth ashrama and uh, I'm beginning to experience what, what might be called uh, uh, formlessness as my fundamental experience of reality mm. already. And so I'm, I'm slowly deconstructing all mental constructs, including the construct that we have a physical body or a mind or this. So how does it feel like in your body? I mean, or I don't know, in your consciousness, how does this, how does this entering this fourth ashrama, like how, what has the experience been for you? Okay. So if I close my eyes, there's no physical world right now. If I close mm -hmm. my eyes, there's no physical world, but there is sound and there is sensation and there's bodily experience, you know, sensations of the body what we call sensations, uh, then uh, what we call uh, emotions, they're still there, and then thoughts are there, and imagination is there, but there's no physical experience of the world. 
And when I close my eyes right now and I feel my body, um, there's no experience there either. So mm. uh, I feel formless. <laughs> and this is, this okay. is very interesting because when you know that you're formless, you can kind of, in a way, in a way, you can morph into anything. So right now, if I asked you to uh, uh, imagine just now, um, snow-clad mountains, do it right now. Okay. Okay. You mm -hmm. see something, right? Mm -hmm. You see an image. Mm -hmm. Now immediately switch to the Empire State Building. You see something else? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right? So to switch from snow-clad mountains to the Empire State, you actually have to return to the formless. Mm -hmm. That form, the snow-clad mountains has to disappear. You have to return to the formless, and then you have to create a new form, the Empire State Building. This mm -hmm. is true of every thought. This is true of every image, every sensation, and every perception. When you recognize that, then you also realize that birth and death are happening ceaselessly now. Mm -hmm. Images are born, they die. Thoughts are born, they die. Images, feelings, sensations, perceptions are born. I look here, I look there, it's a different world. But even the one who's looking is different. So if mm -hmm. I looked at you right now and look away, look at you, you're not the same person. You look like the same. But, you know, I have to take a bunch of selfies and then I'll see that <laughs> 10 years ago, you didn't look like this. And right. 10 years from now, you wouldn't look like this. So what I'm seeing right now is an illusion because uh, and what you're hearing right now is an illusion because by the time these words get to you, they don't exist. So, you know, when um, Wittgenstein said, uh, we are asleep, our life is a dream, but once in a while we wake up enough to know that we are dreaming. Mm -hmm. That waking up is knowing that the formless is the only real thing. Everything else is an on-off of the formless. Images, sensations, thoughts. So there's no death, there's no birth. Birth and death are a continuum of life. Life is the continuum of birth and death. We artificially divide it into, oh, my birth was when I was born, such and such date, or maybe when I was a fertilized egg after my parents you know, had their consummation or whatever. And then from there, zygote, embryo, baby, infant, toddler, teenager, old age, dusty death. That's just a process in awareness. And I can watch the process and know that I'm free of the process because I'm formless. I can. Yeah. But so how is that? I mean, do you, how is that being formless in a, in a sort of world of, well, sort of with alongside so many people who feel very entrenched in form? You, uh, you, you don't try to um, convince anyone. I did many years. I, you know, I was like a missionary speaking to everybody and realizing that nobody changes unless they want to change and that they're already on the path to inquiry. And so you don't try to convince anybody. But as I speak, as we speak, uh, Kat, a lot of people having these experiences across the world of what they call waking up. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is part of our vocabulary now, woke or whatever. But mm -hmm. people have different uh, ways of interpreting it. But ultimately, it's total freedom. And you let everybody be where they are. I mean, you know, Trump is where he is. Biden is where he is. Do you feel like um, 
do you feel like when you've experienced awakening, um, do you feel like this sort of state of awakening or, or essentially like our inhabiting of it, um, um, like it changes. So like, you know, like, I feel like, you know, I had, I, I, you know, I had a very spiritual experience, this sort of, um, some samadhi, whatever. So like, but, but I also feel like in moments I'm sort of in a state and then, uh, you know, then I kind of forget and, and the practice is remembrance. And so I forget. And, and I mean, this leads me to another question I have for you, but, um, but can you speak to that? Like, sometimes essentially my question is in very simplistic terms, do you sometimes feel more awakened than others than other times? Yeah. Although, you know, when you start to wake up, you do see through the veil of uh, what is traditionally called ignorance, but it's not a condescending word. Uh, Ignorance means you're ignoring the bigger reality. Yeah. You're focused on the small reality, like a small reality could be, what am I going to have for lunch? The bigger reality, what is happening across the cosmic horizon? Yeah. I mean, my experience, and I don't want to cut you off, but, but my experience was, is that, you know, once I experienced this sort of what felt really true to me that, um, that like I sort of now like I can call my own bluff all the time so that like the stories that I have just become much less convincing Um, and I can always refer to that as truth and this other stuff is not as much but sometimes to varying degrees I'm convinced of these illusions more than other times and do you experience that in your life like like I wanted to ask you about you know I mean, look, like, and I have, you know, like I have books and shit. I I, like, I have books to read, like things, quotes and stuff that people have said about you. And you've obviously, you have some incredible fans, people who are just diehard Deepak, like you are it. And then you have a lot of skeptics who have fought with you and attacked you. And, you know, in the past, you've had these public fights with Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and like all of these atheists and certain scientists and whatever. And like, do you still, I mean, like, does it get to you? No. 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 Did it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think only in the last um, less than 10 years, I've decided not to engage with uh, contentious debates. People like uh, Shermer, etc., the skeptics have actually become friends. Dawkins still avoids me, but, you know, I've reached out to him, etc., so no, I don't, I don't engage in contentious. And do you credit this to your sort of advancing into this fourth? Um, I forget the name already. It's, yes. If I engaged in that, I wouldn't be true to myself. No, that's right. Okay. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, and I found this poem and I know you love Tagore and I found this incredible poem. I have um, to listen, watch it. Oh, there you have it. Yeah. Tattered copy of Tagore. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I don't know if this poem is from that. I don't know. Okay. Um, but um, this is called The Beginning. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it because I think it's worth it. It points to a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, Where have I come from? Where did you pick me up? The baby asked its mother. 
She answered half crying, half laughing and clasping the baby to her breast. You were hidden in my heart as its desire, my darling. You were in the dolls of my childhood's games. And when with clay, I made the image of my God every morning, I made and unmade you then. You were enshrined with our household deity. In his worship, I worshiped you. In my hopes and my loves, in my life, in the life of my mother, you have lived. In the lap of the deathless spirit who rules our home, you have been nursed for ages. When in girlhood my heart was opening its petals, you hovered as a fragrance about it. Your tender softness bloomed in my youthful limbs like a glow in the sky before before the sunrise. Heaven's first darling, twin born with the morning light, you have floated down the stream of the world's life. And at last you have stranded on my heart. As I gaze on your face, mystery overwhelms me. It makes me cry. You who belong to all have become mine. For fear of losing you, I hold you tight to my breast. What magic has snared the world's treasure in these slender arms of mine? So the reason that I read this to you is because one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I remember you saying this, um, in somewhere, you know, I've heard you speak a lot, but I remembered you saying about, um, and maybe this speaks to the third stage, um, where, you know, I guess from 50 to to 75 here, um, that you, you sort of had felt like you'd were able to kind of detach, you know, from your kids in a way. Um, but what, and, but you said, but I still feel very attached to my grandkids (laughs) at that moment. You said that, and certainly like, you know, as a parent, I've never felt so embodied. I mean, my attachment to my daughter and like reading that poem, it's so moving to me because, you know, we're so, it's, it's such a privilege to be with her in this lifetime and to like hold her. And so I'm just curious about that experience of finding detachment with even your kids and why it was harder with your grandkids. And, and is that still an experience you have? Where are you sitting with that now as a parent and as a grandparent? I'm slowly detaching from that experience too, because the next step is to detach from my own body and my own mind and my own intellect and my own ego. And uh, so detachment is in stages. Um, And so, yeah, I'm going to have to detach from family, friends, body, mind, intellect, ego, all of that. Here's the issue, Kat. We can never, never, ever mentally solve mystery of existence. You know, you just read this beautiful poem. It could only come from Tagore because he's Mm -hmm. seeing the whole universe in that baby. And -hmm. yet he's saying that you're mine. Okay. Uh, But uh, the way you feel about your child is the way every mother feels about her child, right? So the child is as much um, personal as it is impersonal. Every child is in a sense, the mystery of the universe. And mystery can't be solved. It cannot be solved. It is impossible to solve the mystery at the level of thought. Okay, so we shouldn't even try. And just feeling that the love you feel for the child, for your child, if you could see the world with those eyes, you would feel it for the whole world. Yes. Okay. That's the only reason, in fact, you're given the gift 
to feel that experience for your child. Yes. So you could look at the world through those eyes. That's, I feel thought. that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I feel that. And so, but just so again, to get back to you and 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 your feelings and your body and and your, you know, some just personally, does grief arise as you as you go into this fourth stage? You know, one of the meditations I do at night is I do a lifelong recapitulation. So I go back to my first memories of, of a child sitting in my mother's lap. And I can see her image in my mind's eye. I can even smell her, you know, her skin. I can hear her singing songs to me. And I can feel great love and I can feel her presence. Every night I can do that with anyone. But these days I've been practicing with my mom, yeah. who's been disappeared, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, uh, or, yeah, close to 20 years ago. And so where is she? Well, she lives as presence in me. So, you know, and then I, I do a simple thing like move your hand right now. All your ancestors are present here. Yeah. You can't do a single thing without the chain of being right now as genetic mm -hmm. material in every cell in your body. So mm -hmm. every ancestor has is right here in every mm -hmm. cell of your body. You can't mm -hmm. speak, you can't sense, you can't do anything unless all of them are alive in you this moment. Mm -hmm. But it takes a while to get that. You know, you can be a student of spirituality, read all the books in the world and figure out everything and then you give up at the end. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly it seems that, you know, you feel this wholeness where there is only love and it's not focused. Mm -hmm. It's like light coming from a bonfire that's not mm -hmm. denied to anyone, but it's not focused to anyone too. It's just love, pure and simple. And then you realize that every personal love is actually an expression of that. And that's mm -hmm. very joyous, by the mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not detachment, it's disentanglement. I'm not engaged now. See, if I close my eyes and do nothing, the normal person, I ask you to close your eyes, do yeah. not, you'll, you'll start experiencing your, your internal dialogue, which means you're having a conversation with yourself. It's all about you, that conversation. And it's also about you as it pertains to others. And your body is a projection of that. We call it the karmic body. But when there's no internal dialogue, there's only love then the body disappears. Even so me. when you sit and you do this meditation and you envision your mother and you imagine being, you know, held by her and sung to by her, do you, um, um, do you, do you miss her and, or, and, or does that missing her feel just like pure love and joy? I mean, what is your feeling? Well, in the beginning, it was almost like the dark night of the soul. Mm. You know, not only do you miss her, you say, what happened? You know, mm. where is she gone? Then you look at all the other people, you know, in your family, in particular your ancestors, they're gone. And then you say, I'm going to be gone too. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then you say, who am I that is going to be gone? And you can't find a person. I mean, I, I find that who's Deepak? I can't find a Deepak here. You know, so then what happens is, you can, you, there are many things that can happen. One is you go into despair, deep, dark night of the soul. 
and I've experienced that. The second is you say it's all meaningless, nihilistic, okay? And that is a, even a deeper despair. And mm. the third is suddenly, for so, no reason whatsoever, you have spontaneous joy, spontaneous freedom. You know you are home base. You know that there is truth. You know there is goodness, beauty, harmony, love, compassion, joy, equanimity. It's your nature. And you're at peace because you've seen through the fall constructs of birth and death. So those are the three immediate revelations that happen. I am not in space-time. I am truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, love, joy, compassion, beauty. I see in every object myself, doesn't matter what it is, that then becomes beautiful. It's a pen, but I see myself in that. It's beauty. I see myself in you. That's love. So they're all the same thing. And suddenly that starts to dominate. And then actually what happens is you can direct it anywhere because you don't need anything anymore and so I'm slowly entering that stage where if you ask me what do you want and I'll say I don't want anything and it feels very authentic it feels authentic it feels authentic now Uh, you know I could have said that maybe 15 years ago and not totally been comfortable with it Mm -hmm. but right now if I can serve with love if I can have access to a community where people engage in these kinds of conversations, you know, these, these, these three words are very important in Sanskrit, seva, service, sangha, community, and sadhana, spiritual practice. That's where I am now, these three activities. Now, mm-hmm. in between, I'll do conversations, I'll do Zoom, because I have to do something, right? So, <laughs> might as well do something. Well, do you? I mean, you know, like there's this, uh, you know, there's this sort of, I don't know, it's a legend or myths or ideas about, you know, people just sitting on mountaintops, just not yeah. doing anything, purely being. Yeah, you yeah. Know? I was just actually just saw a documentary on Ramna Maharishi. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'm happy to send to you. Please, you will, yeah. you will love it. Okay, but so there are, and then I know personally now some people who last twenty years of their life they just go into silence and they don't. And when, how about you? But you don't want to do that. I might. I don't know. I mean, I right now what I'm trying to do is these three things. You know, I spend four to six yeah. hours in sadhana. I do a little bit of this uh, engagement. And then every week I do a global sangha. And then, you know, I have all these nonprofits where I'm trying to uh, take care of people with depression and things mm. like that. But, you know, again, there's no entanglement. There's engagement, but not entanglement. So, engaged in other people's personal stories. So part of the reason that I'm asking you um, about your feelings is that, um, you know, uh, I mean, you're, you're, into, you're so, you're so, I mean, your intellectual uh, understanding and your eloquence is just so unparalleled. And, 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 and sometimes we have this idea that like once we're enlightened and I don't even want to talk about that for a moment, although maybe we'll go back to it, but, and I'm not calling you enlightened, although maybe you would call yourself enlightened. I don't know, but let's like put that aside for a second, but there's some sort of idea that like what we're that there's a per- the, the pursuit here is to not feel things anymore. <laughs> that actually feelings are a demonstration. That this despair that you speak of, that that you know, that it's part of maybe this path toward transcending, um, 
is somehow a signal that like we're doing it wrong. That if we have feelings of despair or sadness or shame or anxiety that like we've missed the mark or that we're, we're not living to our, our greatest potential as, you know, I don't know, aware beings. Ultimate goal is to be totally spontaneous in the moment. Um, and uh, whatever you feel is what you feel at the moment. But you know, our feelings are generated by memories and by imagination. And so feeling is the closest mode of knowing. But there's something which is called pure knowing, which is transcendent knowing, where all knowing occurs in silence. Okay, that's Ramana Maharishi or Atmanand Krishna Menon or even um, Krishnamurti, although he lost it many times because he was frustrated that people didn't understand him. I've had those experiences where I get very frustrated and I've had this compulsion to explain. And, you know, also uh, that's been my career. I mean, all these books that I've written is because of the compulsion to explain. And I feel that I'm a good explainer, but then I ask myself, why do I have this compulsion to explain? And in the end, does any explanation make sense? And the answer is no. In the end, no explanation makes sense. But there is something called pure knowing, which is the purest form of knowing. It comes in silence and it's nonverbal and you know what to do. You know, the right response to every situation as it occurs. By right, I don't mean morally right, but that expands your awareness in the direction of unity consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that is pure knowing. But then the second finest way of knowing is what you call feeling. So you don't need to have a brain to feel. Bi biological mm -hmm. organisms without brain have feelings. Okay, they, uh, even every microbe feels its way through the world. The plants feel their way through towards the light and animals and its feeling is very primordial. Thinking comes last and that's a very human uh, uh, desire to want an explanation, to give a construct, to create a storyline. It's mm usually only human and that's how we construct our world mm -hmm. so thinking is less reliable and all thinking is magical lies anyway but we can go into that very uh, i believe i i know you're all right. thinking yeah. is lies magic yeah. lies and all problems are created by the thinking mind so no problem can be solved by the mind because the mind creates problems okay mm -hmm. now feeling is different if you focus you say how am i feeling and if I'm feeling guilt, shame, anger, hostility, fear, um, depressed, that's a sign that I'm not connected with myself. Mm. And in have not being connected with myself, I don't feel that for others, so I feel separate. On the other hand, if I'm feeling empathy, compassion, love, joy, equanimity, and I want to do something about it, you know, I feel compelled to help people, that's very authentic being connected so you don't need to even analyze you say what am i feeling right now am i feeling connected or separate that's it don't be morally judgmental about it and then you know if you're feeling separate ask yourself what's the opposite of this and i do that myself you know mm. and now i can shift from feeling separate 
to feeling connected. So you do do this. I mean, you know, like I think a lot of people uh, who know you and are familiar with you and, you know, your breadth of work would assume that you never have those moments on a day-to-day basis where you feel separate or you you feel frustrated or whatever the thing. Like, I, I think a lot of people might assume that, you know, you're sort of past that. You've evolved and and probably by the way and and I and I don't know but my in my imagination you do you're in a body you know you have a body you feel things and then but you as you are have you know learned how to very quickly process through that feeling and you know you can very intentionally sort of choose another state of being am i saying it right you're saying it right and yet you said something very important. If you had no karma, which means no internal dialogue about yourself, you wouldn't need a body, okay? The fact that you have a body means that you're recycling karma, your internal dialogue, your story. And also you want your story to be validated and you want to cancel other people's stories. We are in a cancel culture anyway. So Mm -hmm. all the conflicts in the world are basically conflicts of stories. So what happens is very slowly you disengage or you have insight as you did that my personal story is one version of many stories about me. All I have to ask is my husband or my child or my parents <laughs> get different versions sure, yeah. of me. Yeah. And then, you know, you expand that and you see that the, all, the whole world is just that, stories, and that they're all provisional. And then uh, you slowly start to move in the direction where at least when you close your eyes, the body doesn't exist and you mm. know, oh, I'm, I'm closer to that. And there's more peace, there's more mm. equanimity. And that's not peace of mind because that's an oxymoron. The mind is never at peace. It's mm. the awareness that is behind the mind that starts to kind of be felt as what the great spiritual traditions say, I am. Not I am Cat Foster or mm. I'm Deepak Chopra. I'm, I just I am, you know, that, am, yeah. that slowly starts to creep in. So this, um, what you just said reminded me that I wanted to ask you about this. And also this relates back to the Tagore poem, um, because, you know, in that poem, she so eloquently describes how her child has been with her since her childhood and in the most subtle of ways, just like in their, in her body. And I wanted to ask you about this, some note, you know, I took, I take very prolific notes when you speak. (laughs) So I have notes from, uh, you know, I don't know when this is 2013 or something, but, um, you talk about you talked about the four stages of intention and how the most powerful stage of intention was the totally when the intention is totally unmanifest that that we 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 have some intention but we're not even aware of it and then that the second stage is this faint awareness um, the third stage is a verbal thought in like a to put the intention into language and the fourth is um, you know when the intention actually becomes speech and action um, and how you know. Uh, the intention is at its most powerful or at its closest to manifesting actually when it's in this, when it's totally unmanifest, which is of course a paradox, which of course everything that's true and right in the world is. But um, what, can you just speak about that a little bit? Because, you know, like whatever, for all the actors that listen to this podcast, but also for all the people, you know, everyone's always trying to like manifest their intentions. And like, it's, you know, it's so popular now to talk about how we manifest and all of this stuff. And I, I've always, you know, um, 
I learned so much from you in, in that, in that insight there. And so I wonder if you could expand on that. And certainly, like I said, I think that took Gore. So even that little insight, the four stages, that was a very abbreviated form of mm-hmm. um, the body of knowledge that we call yoga. So if you give me permission, I'll very quickly tell you what yoga is. Yoga means union with the source of all existence, which includes your soul. So, you know, if you want to think of your body as a hardware and the world as a movie, which this projector is projecting, then your mind, intellect, and ego is the software. But then there's a coding. And that coding, you know, these days we code digital codes, zeros and ones. That code, and there are coders who do that. Okay, they code movies, they code songs, etc. The coding is is what gives rise to the software working into the expression of the movie or the song. The coding itself is what in traditional Vedanta is called jiva, your soul, your individual soul, which is based on past memories, karma, etc., desires, etc. But it's so coded that you're not aware of it, okay? Mm-hmm. You're not aware, but it's the basis of both your internal dialogue and the movie that we call body, mind, and the world, the changing movie. Started as a fertilized egg, ends with death, if all goes well. Um, but uh, that's the coding. Now, what is being coded is pure consciousness, which is one with universal consciousness. So if you actually follow the sequence, Brahman, Atman, Jiva, mind, intellect, ego, subtle body, physical body, energy, and the moving world. That's the sequence, okay? So when I mention those four stages of thought or intention, they're actually come in the last three limbs of yoga. The first two limbs of yoga, by the way, which are called yama and yama, if you want to cut through the cut to the chase, they're basically social and emotional intelligence, what we're calling today, okay? So get them out of the way. The third immediately is asana, which is, you know, we, people go to the yoga studio. Why is asana? Because asana are seats of awareness. Every asana, you say, cow, downward dog, cat, cow, uh, happy baby, whatever. You've done yoga, right? So they, mm-hmm. they're actually seats of awareness and feeling, the yoga asanas. They're the first glimpse of feeling. You get to know the body as awareness. Then immediately after that is what we call pranayama, breath. And you learn to modulate your biology through breath. And then there's something called pratyahara, which means withdrawal of the senses. You shut out the world and you actually go inward to the source of all experience. Now you're beginning the last three stages, which are called dharna, which is subtle intention, just now, which you mentioned, dhyan, which is the flow of meditation and samadhi, which is transcendence. So now we understand the sequence, then this manifestation in this process is not what people are calling the law of attraction. That law of attraction means, you know, I'll win the lottery, I'll get a big house, I'll buy an, you know, Austin Martini or something, whatever this is called. That's not what the law of intention is. Law of intention simply recognizes that you attract every second of your life, what is reflected by a state of awareness, every second. Now, if you are in the stages of awareness where you're ready to have a very subtle intention, subtle intention, 
and then let it go and then abide back in samadhi, transcendence, which we've done when we practice the sutras, then that intention organizes its own fulfillment through what we call synchronicity or grace or whatever. So for actors, for example, you know, if they're playing a role, and this is, I, I don't watch this very carefully, method acting, I'm not an actor, I'm, I don't know the acting world, but, you know, I met some great actors, you know, from, what's his name, uh, uh, why did I ask you? not Joe, but his brother, you know, the Shakespearean actor. Oh, uh, um, yeah, Kenneth, or... Um, British, British, the, the three brothers, you know. Oh, oh yeah, um... Yeah, who played Shakespeare, you mean, in the movie with... Yeah, uh, he's Paul played Joe. Julius yeah. Caesar on stage, yeah, yeah. etc. Joe Fiennes. Joe, Joe Fiennes, Fiennes yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Fiennes, uh, Ray Fiennes, and yes, Joe yeah. Fiennes, and all these yeah, guys, yeah. and their sister, and they're really method actors, and they are amazingly good actors. Mm-hmm. I've known um, uh, the... Uh, what's his name? Um, Sir... Uh, uh, and no, Gandhi, you're talking about... Gandhi. Um, Oh, oh, uh, King Kingsley, Ben Kingsley. Kingsley. So yeah. uh, these actors and also some, even Richard Burton, okay, method mm-hmm. actors, what they did was so successfully is they were able to witness themselves as if from a distance. So they yes. were in the role, but they were also not in the role. Yes. And Ben Kingsley, I believe, when he uh, was... Uh, filming for Gandhi for the entire year he became vegetarian didn't drink alcohol gave up cigarettes even became celibate and practiced spinning on the wheel for that one year so he embodied that role and then next day he can switch to something else now mm-hmm. that is a great actor yes. because actors naturally have a tendency good ones to witness themselves as if they're witnessing their whole performance as an audience. It's part of the craft. We learn that. You learn that. So that, by the way, in spiritual traditions is called be in the world and not of it. That's actually a stage of expansion of consciousness to soul consciousness when you become the witness and then you're the witness even in waking, dreaming and sleeping ultimately. And also you wake up to the bigger reality. This is a step in that direction. Actors somehow intuitively are are there, the good ones, you know, not the ones who are pretending. Well, this is why, this is the whole point of this podcast. I mean, everything that you just said, and you know, I, the way that I articulate it, which is completely stolen from you, Deepak Chopra, <laughs> is that I do feel like the best performances, when you see an actor uh, whose, whose performance in that moment is transcendent, they are in that moment, the seeing, the seer, and the seeing itself, which is of course what you talk about. I mean, they, they are pure awareness in that moment. And, and the reason that they're able to access that pure awareness in my humble opinion is that um, actors are trained to live in paradox we are we are uh, manufacturing truth we are pretending to be real and so this this really interesting paradox that actors have to become very uh, comfortable in is extremely expansive so that's essentially the point of this podcast Um, and 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 also why quite frankly I don't really to say I don't care is maybe a little crass or rude, but it's like my concern isn't so much in people's careers or how they do the roles or whatever. My interest lies in how actors who have experienced that kind of consciousness or or that state of being, how they how they how they practice that in their everyday lives. So can we 
while we're on stage be the seeing the scene and the seeing itself? And can we, while we're at the grocery store, uh, practice that? That's my interest. That's the whole point of this podcast, you know? And, and because, you know, and that's why this podcast isn't really an acting podcast in my humble opinion, even though I interview actors, it's, it's, I want everyone to, to reap the benefit of whatever consciousness actors by virtue of their training and craft have been able to, uh, you know, attain or, or whatever, or expand. Um, so yes, I completely agree with you. And it's, you know, it's like a special thing we're doing. So, but while we're on acting and, you know, if I can broaden that and I can't remember did I cut you off? Were you about to make another point? Okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, sort of, you know, again, like this sort of broader conversation, if we call it creativity is I remember you saying, I mean, now you've written 91 books. Is that right? Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Okay. So, you, I mean, you're just so accomplished, right? Like in a very, you know, very real way, you're a very accomplished, uh, human being. Not many people have written 91 books in 75 years or less than 75 years. So whatever, I know you struck, right? Okay. And, but one of the things that you said, I remember is that, you know, you've written all of these, these books, but you haven't worked hard a day in your life. And that actually these books sort of feel like they write themselves. Would you still say that? And, and can you describe that for us? Because it seems, you know, it really, it yeah. defies rational, rationale. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's very interesting before we, I answer that artists in general, and uh, actors, but artists, music, music, musical artists, recording artists, and artists of any kind, they also have tortured lives. You know, they, they go through the dark night of the soul, their addictions. Um, you see that all the time. Okay. So that's part of the spiritual journey. And also, actors and artists are comfortable with ambiguity and paradox and contradiction, which is the basis of creativity. If everything was certain, there's no creativity. You'd be an algorithm, right? And biological robot. So that's who wants to be that. But yet, 99.9% of humanity is that. Okay. They want this, want certainty, they want predictability. When the essence of existence is, in fact, ambiguity, uncertainty, unpredictability, contradiction, and paradox, which is the basis of creativity. But what happens with many artists that I've seen, and you brought it up, that they start thinking about the success, and then they're as good as their last performance, or as good as their last song, or their last movie, and then they lose it. And then they go through this dark night of the soul. So spirituality is not a, a, it's a humbling journey. Okay, it's a very humbling journey. And it takes you through all these ups and downs till you finally get it. And what you get it is you don't control anything. That all you know is yourself as awareness, and that's enough. It mm. unfolds spontaneously. So given that, do these books come to me? Yes. So, you know, I ask myself questions every day before I sleep. I recapitulate my life. I practice lots of stuff. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't have personal interests anymore. I'm not a social person. I don't go to parties. I don't even watch movies, to tell you the truth. Uh, and these days, I hardly read books. But if somebody sends me a really interesting book, like this one, and it's 20 verses of the Shiva Sutras in wow. 800 pages, then I read it. <laughs> 
And then I want to talk to the guy, you know, so now I'm talking to this guy. Yeah. And, um, I learned from him. But by and large, now I don't read. Okay, so I ask questions. I go into silence. And in the morning, I write notes and some of them make a book. Sometimes there are three books that I'm doing simultaneously. And I don't know which one will be the next one because they're all kind of unfolding. And I also know that it might stop any moment. And that's fine, too. Right. So what you're talking about is just the lightest touch on your creativity. I mean, That's just it. like the lightest touch. Lightest yeah. touch, yeah. Lightest. Yeah. It's, it's so like, beautiful. you know, as Alan Watts used to say, I'm singing in the bathroom and some people enjoy the song. That's you know, it. it's funny that you should quote Alan Watts because actually above my desk here, I have this Alan Watts quote that, you know, I just feel like is so that I, that resonates with me so deeply and also um, you know, is so part of this conversation. So I'm just going to read it. I wasn't planning on this, but here I have it. Yeah. And you mentioned Alan Watts. To the, in, to the individual, this is from, um, you know, uh, this is it. To the individual thus enlightened, it appears as a vivid and overwhelming certainty that the universe, precisely as it is at this moment, as a whole, and in every one of its parts, is so completely right as to need no explanation or justification beyond what it simply is. The mind is so wonderstruck at the self-evident and self-sufficient fitness of things as they are, including what would ordinarily be thought the very worst, that it cannot find any word strong enough to express the perfection and beauty of the experience. The central core of the experience seems to be the conviction or insight that the immediate now, whatever its nature, is the goal and fulfillment of all living. That's beautiful. And, you know, when you get that totally, you even understand that now is not a moment in time. Yeah. Now is not a moment in time. No, well, this moment has already happened, is happening, it happens in the future, has happened in the past, you know, and I'll also, you know, I, I was going to close with this and I know we're not closing yet, but I have a very brilliant friend named Zibby Allen. And of course, you know, I mean, look, I know you're Deepak, like we're friends, right? But I also, you're Deepak Chopra and that's fucking weird that you're, you know, but you're also just a human like we all are. And Anyway, so, but I've been a little like nervous, you know, about, I mean, you know, well, cause like I interview actors, it's like, I'm very easily, you know, it's very easy to talk to actors. I mean, like we have so much common experience, but you and I, I mean, you know, as I've been introduced to you, you're a teacher, you're all of these things. And of course you're also just a human and a father and I love you and all of these things, but you know, like I was a little nervous. So my friend, said this to me. She said, here's what you remember. She said, we are incarnated in this lifetime to remind us of the truth of who we are. The truth of me is that everything is the truth of me is everything that I've endowed you Deepak with in the Akashic realm. This interview podcast has already happened. This has been an orchestrated ordained divine appointment with you. This being called Deepak Chopra designed to remind me and you and all of our listeners, who we all are, which is everyone. <laughs> it's true. I mean, the thing is, you can say this, you can hear this, and if you repeat it enough, it can even become a cliche. And so there are some amazing insights that have become cliches and people don't think about them. But when you read this and you experience this, then I know that when I look at somebody like Kat Foster, and I feel some kind of resonance with her, I'm actually knowing myself as her. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that is that is also, you know, they say the traditional Vedic traditions, when you see uh, yourself in another person or another being, even a dog, cat, that's love. And when you see yourself in a coffee cup, that's beauty. So it's all the same thing. Love, beauty, and joy, and oneness, and knowing myself as the other and the other as myself is the same thing it is your love so you know like one of the things and actually we do have to end soon i just realized because you're it three right three three okay okay so well okay so we're gonna wrap around here um in within the next five minutes or so to give you some time but um you know we're we're talking about the hologram these days right like the very good yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that essentially, you know, that nothing is real. Right. And, and, but that like these things, these patterns that recur in our lives, they are part of a hologram that is essentially programming that we've had either, you know, karmically for centuries or in infinity or from childhood wounds or whatever that have, you know, sort of convinced us that certain things are real and that because it's all a hologram, we can shift our hologram if we can shine some consciousness on it or awareness on it. Um, and so can you just speak to that a little bit? I mean, look, I, I have questions for you. I, I just let's, feel let's like with the holograph, because it's a very good, uh, good, uh, metaphor. Okay. So, uh, let's say you wanted to take a hologram of this. Okay. What you would do is you would shoot at it, two laser beams, one that goes directly at this and one that bounces off a mirror. So the one that goes at this, it spreads out. The other bounces off a mirror and interferes and creates an interference pattern on the screen. Now, if you take that interference pattern on the screen, you cut it up in a million bits or a trillion bits or a billion, trillion, trillion bits. You take the teeniest, weeniest bit of it, you'll see the whole cup again. That's right. You will not only see the whole cup again, you will see a cup in a different shape. It might look like this, like this, or it might look so different that it won't look like a cup, but it's still the cup. So the way I think of the hologram right now is as a metaphor, imagine a gigantic, infinite, borderless, now very difficult to imagine, but true it, borderless or very leaky margins, um, uh, spaceship. And the spaceship has infinite windows Okay, and you as a body mind are a telescope looking out of a particular window. You think you're looking at a different scene, but it's the same scene that another person is looking at the window. So I'm looking at uh, the window. I see Cat Cat, uh, Foster and I see a tree, but actually they're both me. They're both me and Mm -hmm. they just look different. That's okay. right. Uh, and they're holo movements. They're not even holograms. They're, it's an evolving movement that is constantly recycling, but also evolving. So we recycle karma, memories, and all that, but then we evolve. It's like a winding staircase. You keep going up and up and up. You know, you get off at the Empire State Building, maybe 50 floors, but then you catch the elevator again at the 50th floor, going up and up. And what's the end? 
there is no end. It's a never-ending horizon. And what uh, the today scientists are talking about multiverses. If you go yes, to Caltech, I have this written down. Yes. Yeah, Caltech University uh, multiverse. You know, he's talking about what's his name, Sean um, Carroll. He's talking about infinite versions of you and infinite universes, all mathematically true. Okay, yeah. string theory is also talking about that. But if you actually understand consciousness is fundamental. These are different locas. Loka means locations in space-time, but they're frequency domains of consciousness. So in fact, there are infinite use, there are infinite universes, but they're all different vibration states of consciousness. And we can end with this. If you read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and if you actually understand it, and if you actually explore your own reality, you will know that you have, if you wake up, you have the possibility of traveling in these different locas. Now, you know, it's not an accident that when people take psychedelics, they say, I traveled because mm -hmm. they did. You travel in consciousness and local. There are infinite universes that come and go in the vast expanse of consciousness, like motes of dust dancing in a beam of light and you are the beam of light actually projecting these hollow movements stunning stunning and we can uh, we and we have some we can we can practice some very subtle quiet intentionality around uh, what mode of dust we decide to inhabit we do once we become totally familiar that the formless is the only permanent reality and it changes into any form and phenomenon through subtle intention provided you have bypassed the secret passages and the dark alleys and the ghost attics of your mind. If this is the mm -hmm. mind, that's the problem. That's right. Oh, Deepak, I love you. Thank you so much. I love you. Let's on. meet sometime next time. Please. Yeah. I, and if I you would... come to New York, let's connect. Yes, please. And let's explore. This is the time to explore. This is my favorite stuff. Truly, truly, truly. Thank you. Okay. Mwah. Lots of love. Bye-bye. That's our show, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at I am Cat Foster. Reach out to us using the hashtag ActingRealPod. We really, really get those messages and we really, really answer them. Links and recommendations for this week's episode can be found at ActingRealPodcast.com. Episodes drop on Mondays. Most importantly, if you love this show, please subscribe to it, rate it, review it. We love seeing those. It means a huge deal to the show. We're so grateful for you. We love you. Have a great day. This podcast was produced by the incredible Augusta Chapman with help from our amazing coordinator, Hannah Barbakoff, and our very talented sound engineer, Baraka Jenga. The music, which I absolutely adore, is composed by Sean Hokinson.